This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so. But each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. When I first got in touch with Bracha Getz, today's guest, I just knew that she was a prolific author of children's books, perhaps the most widely published in the religious Jewish world, and that's all I knew. But getting to have this conversation with her that you'll hear on this episode, I got to learn about an incredible life story, her own spiritual odyssey, her battles with food addiction and her recent memoir reflecting on her life and that particular challenge, and really just a wonderful portrait of a searching, passionate, endlessly curious Jewish woman who ended up bringing so much to the Jewish community through her own travels. Meanwhile, a reminder is always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Comments, suggestions, sponsorships, Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. Please subscribe wherever you're listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and please let others know that they can do so as well. When you hit that subscribe button, all future episodes come right into your feed. No further action necessary on your part. So please do that for yourself and let others know how they can do so as well. And now to our conversation with prolific children's author, Bracha Getz. We are here with children's author, I believe the author of 38 books, if, I, if I'm reading correctly. Bracha Getz, how are you? Wonderful. Happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. So we'll get to those 38 books, quite a, an output. But before we get there, I'm sure you weren't always an author. You were a child first before you wrote children's books. Where did you grow up and uh, what was your upbringing like? Oh, I grew up in Queens, New York, and I had a wonderful childhood, really awesome parents. What's so amazing is that even though like, I had such a sweet, really loving childhood, I still began to feel that there was something missing around when I turned 12, which is interesting. I started searching for more, like I couldn't believe this was all there was to life, that We wake up each day to go to work, to make money, to get food, to go to work, to make money, to make, you know, like, that's it. There's got to be more to life than this. So I was searching into a number of different religions. I was, you know, brought up to be Jewish, but I didn't really know that Judaism had any spirituality to it, like kind of like a cultural connection to Judaism. And I was searching in Buddhism and Christian science, and I got really involved. And I, I actually learned a lot of wonderful truths from each religion that I got involved with. I was involved with social action, environmentalism, you know, experimenting with drugs, all types of things that I was searching for a deeper meaning in life. Where was more dimension to life than was on the surface? I went to Forest Hills High School where Simon and Garfunkel went years before me. (laughs) 
I, you know, I started studying this stuff. I started doing really well in school at one point, and then I ended up going to Harvard. And there too, it was fascinating to me. I was on my search, like maybe here I'm going to find the meaning to life. You know, it was like God at Harvard. That was Ari Goldman's uh, book. Probably a little bit later than you were there, but what did he say? Called the Search for God at Harvard, a famous book that he wrote. I never saw that. That's amazing. Yeah, I met lots of interesting people there. Like Caroline Kennedy was in my dorm, and it's interesting. She used to talk to me about Judaism, like I didn't know much, but I knew more than her. And she was asking a lot of questions about Judaism then, you know. So um, all kinds of interesting people I met, like Abby Rockefeller and. Daniel Moynihan's son I was close with, and Robert F. Kennedy Jr., all these interesting people. In fact, I love the story that I was invited to this party, a garden party, when I was there. And to me, it was like I had made it. This must be it, you know, like this is the garden party everybody wants to go to with the children of all these famous people. So there I was, and I'm looking at everybody, everybody seems to be looking for something more themselves. There was nothing like all that exciting. It was the same boring talk, like everybody looking beyond who they were talking to, to see something more, you know? And all of a sudden on this beautiful, beautiful, perfect garden party day, the clouds filled up and it starts pouring. A thunderstorm came down on everything. It was the end of the party. Like all the, all the little tea sandwiches and everything got ruined. And I was so excited. I felt like there is something more than this. This is like the party everybody wants to go to, and there's nothing here. This was a great opportunity to get to what people think is the top and find out that this is not the top at all. You know, that there is, there is still something more. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to keep searching. That was one of my big turning points at Harvard, a real learning experience. You involved at all in Jewish life at Harvard? Oh, well, my boyfriend, who was Catholic, he wanted to learn more about Judaism because I was Jewish. And he was pushing me, let's go to the Hillel, let's try it out. I was not interested. I had been there once and it was like, didn't seem like really not exciting at all. But once he went with me to a Friday night dinner there, and that was about it. I remember. I went to some other event. It was like a political thing and it wasn't spiritual. And I, it didn't like draw me in to what was happening there at all, Jewish wise. So I was just always dating non-Jews and my parents were not happy about that. They wanted me to meet someone Jewish. Were they first generation American, your parents? Their siblings were born in Europe, in Russia area, but uh, they were the youngest of both their families of six children, and they were both born in America. And did you always enjoy writing and, and or children and stories from an early age? Was that already a part of who you were or that was uh, something that emerged later? Yes. I was writing from when I was really young. Like I remember in third grade, they were reading my poems at the parent-teacher conferences. I was always writing in rhyme. It just came out in rhyme. And it's interesting. I remember one poem that they read there was about how books can take you any place. You know, if you read a book, that's what I wrote about, how you could just travel around the world and anywhere in your imagination. So I think that was 
you know, where I was headed. I was fascinated by where, what books could do to a person's life. And yeah, I was always writing from when I was little. Was traveling a big part of what you did at that time? And you said you were searching around for different philosophies and different religions and things like that. Was that through reading or was that also through traveling and experience? Okay, well, interesting. When I was like 15, I went cross country camping out on like a teen program around all cross country. Or when I was 14 or 15 and then 15, I went with USY pilgrimage to Israel for the summer. And I loved it. I felt like I am drawn here. This is where I'm meant to be. And I was like flying. And then I remember there was a sign that said that you have to dress modestly. So on top of my sleeveless dress, I wore like this crocheted shawl. And like the women were screaming at me to get out of the shawl, get out. And like I was dressed terribly. How could I dress like that? I remember being so dejected after that. I was like, this is Judaism. This is how I'm being treated. I'm like, this is not what I'm interested in. So I was like open to spirituality. And then I had that experience, which sent me backwards a little about Judaism because I felt I was dressing very modestly and I put like a shawl over my shoulders and I couldn't understand why I was met with so much anger. Surprisingly, though, that doesn't seem to have completely deterred you or turned you off from getting more involved in Judaism, at least later on, which is perhaps a miracle of sorts. You know, it did turn me off and I went searching into other religions. Definitely. I, I didn't see it as a spiritual religion. That's what I didn't get. I do remember, though, being on a beach when I was dating my boyfriend in college who was Catholic, and I got a book from the library about Hasidic tales, and I was sitting on the beach, and we were reading it together. And I, again, I saw some elements of spirituality there which were drawing me, even though I didn't know where to go. But there was something still drawing me, thinking there must be something there. I'd be drawn and then I'd go away because I didn't really have anything to hold on to Jewish-wise. Absolutely. So I guess you made it through Harvard. What did you study there officially? Psychology. And also I was pre-med. Interesting. So I went on to medical school after Harvard. Then I was dating a Southern Baptist. By that point, my parents were really freaking out. I don't know. I was like, you know, we were talking about getting married. And I know my mother arranged for me to go to Israel for the summer. And so I, I arranged to volunteer in Hadassah Hospital on the oncology ward, just counseling patients. And it was funny because uh, she said, do whatever you want. Just don't contact this one guy I knew from childhood who became a religious fanatic, you know. So <laughs> right away, I wrote to him and I said, I'm coming to Israel. And like, maybe you could help me find out for my patients, what is the purpose to life? I've been searching for years for this. And he wrote back to me and he said, um, don't worry about your patients. I'm going to take you to some places and you're going to finally learn about the purpose to life. I'm going to take you to some schools to learn about things. So did you save those letters? I saved the letters and I saved my diaries from age 12. That's when I started it. And then they became journals when I was in college. And this became my memoir. It became my memoir, Searching for God in the Garbage. It's really a book that wrote itself because I like to write short things, children's books. But this book, all I had to do was put it together, compile it, 
and fill in some loose ends where there was no information. But it was basically, I found the thread of how I became observant and also how I developed and overcame food addictions because it was all connected. And that's the book is all those things documenting like, like I'm a case study, you know, that's really what it was. So did you complete medical school or what happened once you were in Israel? So I had a six week break between my first and second year of medical school and I never returned. I never returned to the United States until 10 years later. Uh, well, I mean, for trips, but I, I never came back. I met my husband. I had five of my children in Israel. We started a yeshuv there. We, we lived on a, um, a settlement in the Judean hills. So we had a really exciting life in Israel for 10 years. And first, I took a year's leave of absence from medical school. And I was going to transfer to the Tel Aviv University Medical School. They had a program for Americans. But I really wanted to devote myself to my children during those years. So I didn't want to go back. I'm that kind of person. I know there are people that could do both, but I wasn't one of those people that could go to medical school and raise my children, which is what I, I really wanted to be devoted to doing during those years. So what was so formative for you in Israel that, triggered your enhanced observance, your reconnection to Judaism and so forth? Was it this, this man who had brought you around places? What, what exactly did it for you? Well, it was a number of things. Um, he took me to Orsamech, which had a small women's division at that time. And I was one of the first students there. And also I went to a few classes at Neve as well, Neve Yerushalayim. But it was also reading certain books and reading things and hearing Rav Noach Weinberg of Asha Torah, I think that he had the most tremendous impact on me. There was a poster up in the old city that was from Asha Torah. It was a picture of a bagels and lox sandwich overflowing with bagels and lox, this bagel. And it said, is this the culmination of thousands of years of Jewish history? And this spoke to me. Here I was with some eating disorder. And what I was searching for, is this the culmination? Because I kept trying to go to things that were spiritual. And all they were having were bagels and lox brunches. And it was like these political subjects. It was nothing I was interested in. It wasn't what I was searching to nourish my soul. It wasn't giving me what I needed. So basically, it was things that Rav Noach said that penetrated most deeply. Like I went to this first class at Orsamech. I didn't know what they were talking about. Half the things were in Hebrew. And I'm sitting there. I love to doodle. I, I draw creatures. And I draw this person jumping out of the world and screaming, yay, like I found what I'm looking for. I didn't even understand most of the class. But it was something. It was reaching my soul. And it was also all the other wonderful students that were there who were like not cynical idealistic like me and really searching for genuine truth. It was, it was the people there. It was the teachers. It was Rev Noach's amazing teachings um, that were really revolutionary in making the Torah so clearly relevant to a person's life, which is the genius that he did. And also things that I, were learn I was learning about, I knew that they were studying these things at Harvard. They were giving millions of dollars of research 
to uncover the things I was learning in these classes, like the truth's important information about human psychology was already understood. And here was all these research grants going on when the wisdom was in the Torah, but I didn't know that until then. Were there any individuals that you met over there that, other than Rav Noach, who you still have a relationship with, who were formative for you? Yeah, well, the, the friends that I made there, we are still friends. Because, you know, we were at such a vulnerable point in our lives of searching and gathering information and going through such a transformation together that we've remained friends. And Rebitz and Weinberg, I'm still in touch with her. On Tuesdays, she gives a class online that I listen to. And, she, and we are so happy to connect again. You know, she remembers me from way back. And it's like, it's so awesome to still be connected to her. And I, I told her, I'm spending a lot of time right now spreading Rabbi Weinberg's concepts that I feel need to be out in the world so much. And she was so excited to hear that. <laughs> I just told her that recently, I think like last week. What about the man who initially uh, connected you? Did you stay in touch with him over the years? A little bit. He became very involved in Asia Torah and he still runs the branch in Cleveland. Is that Rabbi Appel? Yes. Yes. We were friends from kindergarten. Wow. That's the one your mother told you not to uh, connect with. That's so funny. I, his daughter actually worked with me for a while, a number of years back, and she's become a very prominent. Actually, she's been, she's been on this show herself. Um, as a Jew, you should know, in Baltimore, right? As you know, yes, Kaya Fishman, that's right. She runs the Jewish Women's Entrepreneur Initiative, exactly. Dayway, and uh, she's created this remarkable organization. She's also a, a, an attorney now and a really amazing person quite wild how life brings people together and how things go. In fact, he had a big effect on me years earlier. I know when he, when I was dating my boyfriend who was Catholic, I think who met him and he said to me, do you want your children to be baptized? I remember that that line affected me very much. I, I wasn't thinking in those directions. And although I didn't break up with him at that point, you know, all these things have an effect. It was something that he said to me that disturbed me at the time. I know at least one of your children is a, uh, the head of a yeshiva in, in Arizona. So it sounds like he was not baptized <laughs> at, the, at the end of the story. So you spent all this time in Israel. You, it sounds like you met your husband there and started a life over there. But it seems like there was also this underlying theme of food addiction. When did that enter the picture? And tell us a little bit about that. Right. See, and I wrote this memoir, that's one of the main points of the memoir, Searching for God in the Garbage, is to explain that I believe that so many addictions, including obviously food addictions, come because we're not getting the nourishment that our soul needs. And what I couldn't understand is how did learning about the Torah and following the Torah's guidelines, how did that help me? to overcome the food addictions. What did one thing have to do with the other? That's what I didn't understand until I found my diaries. And I, I sat on the floor in my parents' house years later and I read them and I go, oh, wow, now I see the connection. I got to make this into a book because this is what I want to explain to people that when it started around age 12 and then it was increasing, 
it was a desperate need for nourishment of the soul that I wasn't getting. And that's what happens to people. A person has food addictions. Why do they just keep eating and eating? Because they're not getting enough pleasure. And they're trying to fill the emptiness inside through physical means, but it's a spiritual emptiness. And so it's never going to fill it. So eating more and more and more doesn't help. It makes a person more miserable. But what a person needs is the spiritual nourishment that they really are desperately craving. So addictions are cries of help from the soul. They're cries of help. Feed me what I need. And this is what's so amazing to me is that Rav Noach talked about the five levels of pleasure. And what I learned recently is that there are five levels to the human soul, every human soul. And what I was thinking is these, when I started to analyze it, is that these levels correspond amazingly. The five levels of pleasure correspond, seem to correspond to the five levels of pleasure that Rav Noach speaks about. And the first level is pleasure. And that's the, the nefesh, the life force, the physical pleasures. So our soul that's connected to the life force is on the lowest level. That's why physical things bring us pleasure. And the most amazing thing that I learned that really changed my life was Rabbi Weinberg explaining that the purpose of life is to experience the greatest pleasure possible. This is something that I'd never heard before, and it's amazing. And this is in the introduction to Mesilas Yasharim. This is what we're here for, to experience the greatest pleasure possible. And we lose sight of that. We think we're not here for pleasure, but that's really what we're here for. And that there are five levels of pleasure gives us a map to how to attain the greatest pleasure possible in life. So once we become familiar with what are the higher levels of pleasure, then we don't get stuck on the level of physical addictions, which are, it could be food, it could be all, all types of things, uh, drugs, drinking, whatever the physical addiction is that um, a person can get stuck on easily because we need more pleasure in our lives and we really are here for pleasure. So it makes sense. So how does a person overcome addictions? By bringing more pleasure into one's life. That's something that I think isn't heard enough. People talk about willpower or discipline, but by actually bringing greater pleasure into one's life, filling one's life with more pleasure, then the need for the addiction goes away because there's no longer a need for that overdoing the physical pleasure when you can have all types of other greater and more lasting pleasures in life. When did the addictions really enter your world? And how long was this something that you were plagued by? When I was in my teens, I was very interested. I never thought about it before, how I looked. And then you start caring about how you look. And I started wanting to be thin. And then I got great reactions because I was thin. And so I was into all this crazy dieting. And that would fluctuate with binge eating because I was starving. And then I would just eat crazy amounts of food, nothing related to my own physical hunger. It was unrelated. It was, you know, based on all kinds of crazy feelings and, and just wanting deeper pleasure in my life, pleasure that could last, because I was feeling more and more empty. Although my life looked successful on the outside, 
I was going to Harvard. I was doing really great at Harvard, going on to medical school. Inside, I was becoming more and more miserable in life and feeling more and more empty. And I reached the lowest point while I was in my first year of medical school. The point when my addictions were really bizarre behavior, I was doing crazy stuff. When do you call that a person has an addiction? Not just a bad habit, when your life becomes unmanageable. And I think by that point, my life was becoming definitely unmanageable. And even though it looked like everything was great, it wasn't. So within, deep within, I was really suffering, even though it looked like I was doing fine on the outside. In your case was Judaism and your your sort of pivot to that lifestyle alone sufficient to curb or overcome this addiction? Or did you need to rely on other tools like 12-step programs you talk about unmanageability? That's a great question. See, for me, I had such wonderful, loving parents that I'm kind of a control. Everything else was good in my life, except that I didn't have spiritual nourishment. So therefore, when I got the spiritual nourishment, that was all that I needed. There are other people that definitely need therapeutic assistance because of all the garbage that's piled on top of our souls. When a person goes through abuse or neglect in their childhood or suffers from other traumas, then the spiritual nourishment has a hard time getting in because of all the garbage that's piled on top of their soul. So a person may need therapeutic assistance in order to absorb the spiritual nourishment. They can't even integrate it because of all the other issues that they're dealing with. In my case, thank God, I had like a really stable, wonderful childhood, and my parents just didn't have the knowledge, the Jewish education, about how life becomes so much more meaningful when you have a spiritual understanding of your life and that, that you recognize you're a spiritual being. So for me, that's what I needed. But there are many other people that will need other assistance as well, whether it's through 12-step groups or through therapy, whatever helps a person. But my important point that I want to get across is that the spiritual nourishment is also vital, vital for continuing to have lasting pleasure. And lasting pleasure is what keeps a person from relapsing into their addictions. A person needs pleasure throughout their days. As much as we need physical nourishment every day, we need spiritual nourishment throughout every day as well. So do you believe that the core offering of, let's say, a 12-step group is that it's supplying the spirituality for people, but if you have that within Judaism, you wouldn't necessarily need it? Or do you think the the 12-step programs are also creating the therapeutic framework for people? That's a great question. It's creating a lot of support as people have, um, they're not called partners. Sponsors. Sponsors, right. They have that. And plus that they talk about a higher power and that can help direct a person. I found elements of spirituality that were helpful to me in other religions, but nothing fit like the perfect puzzle piece that Judaism did in my soul. And that's why I feel it could be that people that are Jewish may need a certain spiritual Jewish nourishment in order to thrive to the utmost. That's what I think 
that Jewish souls need a particular nourishment that's specific to Jewish people. That was true in my case. I found other things that were helpful from other religions, but a lot of things were too vague. It wasn't specific enough. And what was so amazing about the mitzvahs is that the mitzvahs engage your body. And this is something which was not such a part of the other religions and the connection to one's soul and to the source, to the Almighty, is built through these connections. And that in Judaism, we recognize that there are sparks of spirituality in everything in the world, and we get to enjoy uplifting these sparks. So we interact with the world. In many religions, the person that's at the highest level doesn't get married. And in Judaism, Everybody gets married because the connection of marriage helps to build a person. We're very much into being in the world, you know, not being away at an ashram where it's easy to just focus on spirituality, but we are interacting with the world because we're put into physical bodies for a reason. And so it's an important part that we work on ourselves while we're here to uplift our character traits and we turn ourselves into more spiritual beings, even though we're in physical bodies. Tell me a little bit about when you started writing in earnest and 38 books is a lot of books. So when did that begin? When did that whole journey start for you? Did you start exclusively as a Jewish writer, as a children's writer? Right. Actually, my first book I wrote when my children were play- my young children were playing outside in a playground. I was sitting in the Judean hills on the settlement that we started, and I took a notebook and I would write down. I always had ideas, and here I wrote up the story while they were playing, and I got to write it down. I didn't have a computer. I probably didn't have a typewriter then, nothing. I wrote it on like loose leaf paper. I stuck it in an envelope. I sent it to America, and like a few weeks later, I got an answer that the book was accepted, and that was my first book. And then I realized this is what I love to do. I mean, I was very new to being Torah observant at that time, I guess about three years. But I saw that I had something to contribute even, you know, as a beginner, because always I loved the most basic concepts. Like even though I went to Harvard, my always what I'm into is simplicity and taking deep ideas and expressing them in a simple way. So that's what I love to do. And, um, and that's what all my children's books are. They're expressing deep concepts in a joyful way so that children can absorb them early on. And you can even have, you can integrate happiness skills from early on in life. It sounds like it was pretty seamless for you to get published right away. I mean, a lot of authors have these you know, horror stories or these tales of perseverance, rejection from many publishers and continuing to apply. It sounds like you were accepted readily. What do you owe that to? Was it a Jewish publisher early on? And do you think that timing was a a big part of that where you came in at sort of the, the burgeoning of a growing Jewish book industry when there wasn't a lot going on yet, not to detract from the talent that I'm sure was there, but in terms of the timing, what do you think you owe that immediate success to? Exactly. You got to picture it. Here I was, a Harvard graduate, a writer, and a newly from person. There were very few books then, very few books for children at the time. 
So, right, I was accepted by orthodox publishers and people who were good at writing and had an education in writing and could present orthodox views at that time were pretty rare. There were not many of us. And it was, was an opportunity. Now, I don't even feel such a need to write children's books anymore, especially for the orthodox population, because now there are so many people that can do it. Like if someone gives me a topic, they say, could you write a book about this? I tell them who to go to. I say, there's these, all these great orthodox writers, they could do it, you know? At that time, when I had an idea, I had to write it. I felt because this idea has to be in the world, there was no one else doing it then. And now that's not such a need. So I feel like there's a different need, a more universal need. So I am much more focused on getting these Jewish concepts out into the world, which are universal ideas that are important to be shared. What are some of the major themes of your books? You know, Abraham Tversky's written, uh, I think, 83 or 84 books, something like that. I interviewed him a little while back, and that was a great honor. And he jokes that really he's written one book, just 83 versions of it. In your case, do you come back to certain themes over and over again? What are you trying to impart and accomplish with these books? Well, yes and no. Like some of my books, you know, the Let's Stay Safe book, this is helping children to protect children from abuse. And also, let's talk about personal privacy. These were books that focus in different ways on helping children to remain safe. So these are very different concepts than other books I've written. But again, they're all books that help souls to shine. Things like abuse put a ton of garbage on top of little, young, precious, innocent souls. And that's something that I wanted to protect. And I worked really hard for those books to come out into the world. It wasn't easy to get those books yeah, was out. There, was there a lot of controversy around those books? At that time, it was not easy to get them published. There was a lot that had to go forward. They were groundbreaking books in the Orthodox community. And thank God they've helped to change things so much so that children are educated about these topics now. Back in 2011, the first of those books was published. Nobody could talk about these things back then. It's hard to believe, but things have changed in a decade, tremendous, in less than a decade. Now it's commonplace to discuss these things with children, thank God. And then I've written books like, well, this here's a book like Hashem's Candy Store. This is a book about eating healthy. I mean, this is a topic that I feel is not enough also in the Orthodox world, how amazing it is to eat healthy food. And I talk about how things from Rabbi Victor Miller, teachings of his have how when the fruits become their brightest, that's when they're ready to pick. You know, the world was made for our pleasure. Like food didn't have to have an aroma. It didn't have to have a good taste. It didn't have to be beautiful. Everything is done for our greatest pleasure. And so this is all kinds of things to understand for children to know about how awesome fruits and vegetables are. And I write about all different kinds of things. Like one thing is, I'm going to tell you about another book, The Invisible Book. This is a book, actually, see, I first wrote this book universally for anybody, but it was published by a from publisher. It's about all the things we believe in that are invisible. We believe in gravity, right? 
we let go and we believe in gravity. We believe in time. We believe in feelings. We believe in thoughts. And we've never seen these things. Why? We see the powerful effects that these things have on our lives. So it's much more understandable than to believe that we're souls and that there is an almighty who is invisible. Electromagnetism, a magnet can pick up paper clips. It's invisible, but we believe in these things. So I don't know. I write about what do they all have in common? All my books, they're kind of on different subjects, I think, but they're all about helping souls to shine. What are the greatest challenges of writing children's books? Obviously, it's a very different medium than adult books. First of all, just illustrations. And by the way, do you do your own illustrations or, or not? You'll tell me that as well. But what are the challenges? What's different skills-wise or intent-wise when you are writing for children as opposed to for adults? Yes. Well, for me, it comes easily. I still think like a child in many ways, and I have a sense of like wonder about the world. I'm always learning and curious, so I think my head goes in that direction. Also, I need to write articles sometimes because I feel like a topic is so important, but I always wish someone else would write it because I don't really like writing like an adult from an adult head. I prefer to write from a children's head. It's much more exciting to me. And I love the challenge of simplifying. I remember when I was in Orsamaic, they kept moving me up. Oh, she went to Harvard, move her into the advanced classes, you know? And I would sneak back into the beginner's class because that's where I wanted to stay. I always want to stay with the beginning concepts. That's what I want to focus on. And I love teaching about these fundamental basic concepts in life. That's what fascinates me. Oh, and have I illustrated the books? No, I haven't. I'm not good enough. I'm an artist. I love to draw creatures. I draw like really weird creatures. And I haven't written a book that matches up with those creatures yet. So no, I haven't illustrated any of my books yet. Do you have a standing illustrator that you work with for everything or you switch it around? No, and sometimes the publishers pick their own illustrators. And sometimes I get to pick the illustrators. So it works both ways. And some of the illustrators are the same for a few of my books and others are completely different. For an aspiring children's writer, what do you think is the secret to writing great kids' books? Enjoy it. Enjoy your book so much and show it to other people. See if they enjoy it. That's the main thing. Enjoy the process of writing it. If you're having a blast doing it, then you are shining your soul and you're doing what you're meant to be doing. I always tell people, have a great time. Play with it. Don't take it too seriously. I love to write when I'm going places. Like if I'm not driving, if I'm a passenger in a car, I'm on a bus trip, I'm on a plane trip. That's when I bring some ideas that come into my head early in the morning. I write them down. And when I'm on a trip, I'm not doing anything else important. I just start playing with it and seeing, oh, should it go this way? Should it go that way? And I have so much fun just fooling around. I'm not taking it seriously. And that's how your mind can just flow. And very creative stuff that comes out that way because you're not inhibiting anything. You're just going with the flow and enjoying it. Enjoy the process. 
Speaking of enjoying, what would you say are the books you enjoyed writing the most? Maybe your favorite books. If, again, you've got 38 and they're probably like children in a way. It's like, your, who are your favorite children? But, you know, sometimes parents do have favorite children. So do you have a couple of, of ones that really stand out for you? Yes. Hashem's Candy Store is one of my favorites. I love the illustrations in this book. She is one of my favorite illustrators, Dina Ackerman. She's amazing. I love these illustrations. It makes the fruit and vegetables and everything become so alive. That's one of my favorites. Let's Stay Safe is one of my favorites, too, because it actually saves lives. So that's a favorite. Uh, The Happiness Box was one of my early books. And I think that that's affected many, many people who are adults today still come and tell me how it changed their lives. One young man, he was bullied and he told me, That book helped him to go to school the next day, to face people, to become a happier person. It teaches gratitude early on so that a person could have those skills the rest of their lives. That's why children's books are so important. Our minds are so impressionable as as children. And if we can gain this wisdom early on, then we can accomplish so much more in life throughout our lives. You mentioned that you wrote a memoir now, sort of, a, I guess, a, a compilation from your journals, your diaries. First of all, why did you decide to do that? And second, how was that process different from what you were used to, which is writing these whimsical or even serious, but more kind of fun and playful children's books? Exactly. I'm not sure I could write another book for adults because this book wrote itself. I'm not a person with lots and lots. I don't like to write a lot of words. You know, I like short words, short things. So this book, all I had to do was put it together. When I started reading my diaries, I go, oh my gosh, this is a book. And so I just kind of had to put it together, fill in the missing pieces that weren't there, and the book was done. This was an easy thing. And it's something I feel that so needs to be said in the world Addictions are becoming more and more widespread as people don't know how to nourish their souls. So I just feel it's a really essential book for not only Jewish people, for anybody to read it and understand that they need more lasting pleasure in their lives and how to get it. Why did you decide to write this now specifically? I really didn't write it now, actually. I wrote it years ago. But it was published recently, and people were telling me, don't publish this book until all your children are married, because like of all the crazy things I wrote about my life back then, you know, just ended up that way happening like that. What took so long? What happened? Well, the from publishers would not publish it because it's so candid and graphic about my past, and the non-Orthodox publishers they would say, oh, this book is great. This is just what I want to publish until they read the ending. And then they had no interest in publishing it. It was like, it went back like this for years because they didn't want to publish an ending when I become an Orthodox Jew and how the book goes. So it got stuck in the middle. And it has been hard to publish my books to get them out for a universal audience. That's been very difficult. Not like it was easy for me with the from books because they were really needed, but this is also needed, but it's not recognized. 
the publishers are not interested in this point of view so much. And I'm not interested in self-publishing. I really want a venue who is going to bring the books out. So I never self-published my books. And eventually I found a literary agent. She's a Christian and she's a very, I think she's like a born again Christian. And she was so into my book. So she really wanted to get it published. And she helped me to finally get that book published. Who published it in the end? It's called W&B Publishers. It's a small publisher, but that's who published it. So has it gotten any traction in the Jewish world or it's really designed for a completely non-sectarian audience? Many from people have read it. And uh, you could see from all the comments and reviews about it. What's interesting is that now that it's getting out into more of the world, I think the reviews are actually becoming more negative as other people are reading the book and they don't have the same point of view that I have, you know, about Orthodox Judaism. But that's what happens when you go out into the world and you open yourself up to the full light. Is that difficult for you? Because I imagine, you know, when you write children's books, except for your safety books, which were a little more controversial, usually it's hard to hate a children's book. You know, it's (laughs) usually pretty safe ground and you're not really exposed in that way. Is it more difficult emotionally to see your work being evaluated and even criticized in the public eye? That's a great question. I hide behind the screen so it doesn't bother me so much. You know, I'm not like, I'm not like face to face with it. So, you know, especially during this time of the pandemic, I'm, I'm just, I'm just behind a screen. So it's not like, um, it's not right in my face. So it's okay. And I feel so driven by the message that I want to bring into the world that, you know, I don't feel dismissed by it in any way. And I understand that when you're doing something important, there's bound to be controversy about it. And that's just how it goes. Another children's book I wrote, which was a little controversial, was Let's Appreciate Everyone. It's about interaction with how to be more sensitive to children with disabilities, how to include them, teaching children how to be more interactive, because it's so important. This is something else which, when it was published too, in our community, we're now growing in that direction. Like when I see that there's something I feel that needs some improvement, you know, especially as a Baal Tshuva, you're not afraid to express that. When you see some, when I saw something in the firm world that needed more work, oh, okay, let's do something about it. Baal Tshuva's not afraid to do that. And that's why I could speak out and open up about these different issues and write about them because it's a pleasure to do that and to make things known in the world that are good and true like that. It's interesting that you say that Baal Tshuva, a returnee, someone who didn't grow up observant, has more latitude or more willingness to criticize the community that he or she is joining, one could intuit the opposite, that they would feel more insecure and you know, more unqualified to offer or level those criticisms. Exactly. And when I first started out, I thought, who am I to be writing this? I just became orthodox, you know? On the other hand, we're people that are not afraid of change. We don't see that things have to be a status quo if they're not working. Like my life was not working the way it was. So I was going to change it. And I saw how great that was to do that. And we're people that don't feel we have to remain a certain way if it's not working. So therefore, we can branch out and try new things. 
And yes, many people wouldn't have the confidence. I, I guess that's true. That wasn't something I was missing in my life. I mean, I guess because my parents filled me with so much love, I always felt like I could do whatever I wanted to in this world. So when I feel there's a need, I love to fill that need. It's a beautiful insight, this sort of growth mindset that many returnees to Judaism may have within them, and therefore that can then translate over to their involvement in the community itself. What a wonderful way of thinking about it. And Garim as well. Converts, yeah. That's really beautiful. And I, I always argue that people that join the religious community from the outside bring so much freshness and skill and innovation. It's really just so much to the community. And it's, to me, the, the greatest treasure and the greatest gift that the community can enjoy. Yes. And, you know, people that were involved with Asha Torah, especially were taught to be very excited about the fact that they're Bali Chuva. We are like so thrilled to share that. There are people that might be embarrassed. Oh, I didn't used to be religious. Like we love to share that. And my children were so enthralled with that we were Bali Chuva. My husband and I, they always was like, we wish we could be Bali Chuva. We wish we could choose this too, you know? And I think in many ways they did. They wanted to be able to choose this on their own. And, and that was awesome. A very strengthening experience. Just in closing, where can people learn about your work? Where can they find your children's books, catalog of all that you've written, and also learn about your memoir and so forth? Well, yeah, very easy. I don't even have a website. I don't need to because everything's on my Amazon author page. Anyone that looks up Bracha Gets Amazon author, all my books are there. So everything's in one spot. Amazing. And Getz is G-O-E-T-Z, correct? Right. Wonderful. Bracha Getz, an acclaimed children's author and now also the author of her own memoir dealing with her really riveting personal journey and her travels through the world of food addiction and spirituality and so much more. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.